This podcast contains strong language and adult themes, namely discussions around grief. Stick with us though, it does get quite murdery pretty soon. This is Perfectly Murderous. Ciao e benvenuto a Perfectly Murderous con il mio compa Sandy e bello vedetti. Che ci di- dice? Come stai Ryan? Tutto bene, grazie. Per chi non parla italiano, questa parte è divertentissima, vi giuro. E come sta Alice? Sta bene, grazie. <laughs> Your Italian is a lot, a lot better than my Maori ever got. <laughs> Come la tua famiglia, Ryan? Oh dear. Bene or no? I am out of my depth now. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are your family? Tutto bene, grazie. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Learn Italian with Ryan and Sandy. <laughs> the world's leading provider of English-accented Italian language podcasts. <laughs> I tried to look up some Sicilian slang. Ah. And I came up with compa. Compa. Which I think is like bro or mate. I have heard it. I'm going to be honest. Regular Italian gives me enough nightmares. <laughs> I really should learn a bit more Sicilian dialect. How are you anyway, Sandy? Because I think I asked you in Italian, but if you're like me, I only know how to say, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> so I can't actually say anything else. <laughs> so if I'm having a terrible day, I just have to go, tutto bene, grazie. <laughs> yeah, because actually the world is falling down around... No, it's fine. The sun <laughs> is shining, the cotton is high, and the living is easy. Oh, beautiful stuff. All right, Sandy, it is that time where we really visits and see what you can remember we looked at two chapters last time chapter 22 and chapter 23 we are in book one of the robert Steele detective trilogy asterisk robert Steele may not appear our protagonist david stone has very sadly lost his wife Anne in hospital during the night and he's then gone outside he's hit his head and he's woken up in a sort of semi-sedated fog but in chapter 22 we hear that it's not possible for him to get much information he has to wait before he can be seen by a doctor more of this kind of theme that recurs throughout the book of of the frustration of bureaucracy and the slow moving nature of the health service he's desperate to get out but he has to wait eventually a doctor does come in and tells him rather abruptly that he's had a a mild stroke TIA which I mean you don't need me to tell you what that stands for the old transient ischemic attack ah I didn't need to tell you that No, no, absolutely. Sorry to any of the listeners who feel patronised by that. (laughs) He's got high blood pressure and he's... But the only only actual advice he gets is to take painkillers and, quote, calm down, (laughs) which becomes a bit of a reoccurring teeth banging around inside his head as he drives home. He gets back to his house in chapter 23 and sleeps for a very long time after having had a bit of a breakdown in the car park. Mm. He sort of gets out of the hospital and then all of the tension comes out in this, this very poignant image of, you know, before he's even found his car, he just breaks down and cries for a while and everything kind of comes out. He gets himself home manages to get to sleep and then the last thing that happens is he he tries to go around the corner to tell Anne's eldest son the sad news but by then he slept all the way through the day and it's too late at night there's no sign of life so he gives up and goes home Mm, which takes us to chapter 24 
And as you can imagine, he's he's got this thing on his on his list now, hasn't he, to go around and see his eldest stepson. And as we talked around last week, Liz had two children or had two children. So it's very difficult. We, we start to come to the part of the book where my dad starts to talk about other people. Mm. I've kind of not really minded talking so far because my dad's written all this about himself and written it about Anne, who's based on Liz, who's no longer with us, sadly. So it's kind of not really affected other people so much. Mm-hmm. And now we've got to the stage where we're talking about other people. I don't think my dad's really kind of masked who he's talking about <laughs> very much. Right. <laughs> and we talked about, you know, it's the eldest stepson. That pretty much narrows it down. Yeah. But I suppose there are, is something just to keep in mind that obviously this is a fictional book kind of semi-autobiographical so there are elements of truth in here but we don't quite know what's real or not yeah i can imagine it's a reality that is emphasized for the the story Mm -hmm. and perhaps there are thoughts that he wanted to say but didn't say i don't know but i suppose we'll come to that as the chapter comes through but it's just it's just important to keep in mind that we don't know the ins and outs of this conversation there may be (laughs) elements of fiction in here as well Mm. Um, especially when talking about other people who are still alive yeah okay so this is chapter 24 of getting away with murder he woke slowly and it took a while to realize he was at home his thought process wasn't working yet and he felt so lost the house had changed it was very quiet now without Anne. what was he going to do with his life there was a huge hole in it that he had no idea how to fill couldn't spend all day in bed as comfortable as it was that was hiding from reality Still in a dream, he vaguely remembered wandering around the house for hours early in the morning and rearranging the piles of letters generated during her illness. Top of the pile were the Macmillan, green Macmillan booklets. He picked them up and took them out to the recycling bin. Won't be needing them now. Send me a nurse, not a booklet. Too bloody late now. No use after she's gone. Aimlessly, he wandered about. He hadn't a clue what he was doing. The kettle was warm and he was sure he made himself a cup of tea, but he couldn't remember when. Had he eaten? He simply couldn't remember that either. He was sure he'd eaten, but he wasn't sure when. Now he didn't really care either, but then he wasn't even sure if he was hungry. His brain was just far away, unfocused. What was he doing here? He couldn't remember anything. He couldn't remember anything he was doing at all. What was he meant to be doing? Worse than that, did he really care anymore? Life just didn't really matter. It's a a figure who's very lost at the start of this chapter, isn't it? Mm. Just uh, waking up to that cold reality the next day. That kind of dawn of it wasn't a dream and this is reality and then just be very weird coming coming back to a house and just yeah it would be quiet perhaps morning routines are lost and the noise and the hustle and bustle and things like that are all gone It'd be a very weird experience and that sense of um that sense of fuzzy headed confusion you're distracted by something that you don't quite have a handle on yet yeah i think we can all relate to that that sensation where you're you're doing something on autopilot and then every so often you suddenly remember what's been going on mm. that sort of sickening stomach moment when you suddenly just think oh god yeah yeah definitely mm. wandering around the house he went to the bedroom and lay on the bed again for comfort the house was cold he couldn't keep his eyes open he was so bloody tired exhausted drained of any feeling his sleep patterns were completely shot and he fell asleep in seconds sleeping fitfully because his mind was full of images pictorial confusion that added to his own disorientation dreams he couldn't make sense of images that hurt his brain troubled him disturbed him although he needed to sleep his brain overcame his body and he woke up in a sweat hours later simply because his brain couldn't handle the disturbing images that swapped his subconscious 
As he stood up, he felt as if someone had kicked him all over his body and he ached everywhere. He'd been dreaming and something had disturbed his sleep, causing him to wake up in a sweat. It took some moments to realise he was still fully clothed and must have drifted off. He was that tired. As he struggled to make sense of everything, he knew he had to get up because he should be doing something, but he had no idea what. So much to do, so much to organise, but I just can't remember what, where to begin. The room swam and he felt dizzy again at the thought of what he faced and took several minutes sitting on the edge of the bed to gather his thoughts and begin to function. First things first, do what I should have done yesterday. Eat first and then go see them. It's uh, interesting that he's sleeping so much. He's just, he's obviously just completely drained himself at the hospital. Yeah, there was a lot of conversation in those recent chapters about how particularly i can't remember when it was but the night that he spent with Anne before when she died and how hard it was for him to stay awake having basically not slept in i think it was three days or something Mm. and he was fighting to stay awake to make sure he was with her at the end but um obviously that has to be paid at some point yeah i do know my dad's a bit of an insomniac he will stay up and hardly sleep and if something needs to be done he'll make sure it happens and gets done mm-hmm. I remember holidays to France as a, as a kid and we drive right to the south of France and my dad would get the, the midnight ferry and then drive all night and all day wow. or to get to where we're staying and he'd absolutely destroy himself driving for sort of you know 15 hours or something like that and then just sleep for a day yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then just sleep <laughs> but um yeah he just sort of took it upon himself to to do things like that can go long periods without sleep and just sort of push himself when he needs to mm. okay after a slice of toast and a coffee he still felt like death warmed up but he knew he had a lot to sort and reluctantly leaving the sanctuary of his home he walked round to the stepson's house to explain what had happened he couldn't believe they hadn't been in contact to see how their own mother was doing they'd left me to face Anne's death on my own they weren't concerned at all where were they sitting at home letting me bear the brunt of the care They were supposed to support me, but they didn't want to be there when she died. That was too painful. That was my job. They knew I was at the hospital, so that was my job, my concern, my problem. This was a confrontation he didn't want, didn't need. Interesting that he sees it as a confrontation already. Yeah. Before he's even got there. Yeah, I mean, I I now understand more your sort of disclaimer at the start that Mm. we obviously don't know where the reality and the fiction meet here. No, Interesting as well that, that the I mean I, I don't know if it's going to come later but the stepson hasn't been named yet. No, and I think that's kind of maybe my dad of his way of <laughs> perhaps not avoiding specifically naming the person. But again, uh, my my dad's level of tact uh, <laughs> is uh, no, not the best. Something about the blurb from this book gave me that impression. <laughs> It's very difficult as well, isn't it? Because he's, he's gone around there all with, you know, he's almost sort of ready for a fight. This, this is a confrontation. Yeah. In the last moments, why weren't they there? Uh-huh. But also you don't know what's going on in that person's life. That Did they know it was the last or Anne's last day uh-huh. on the last night? You just don't know. Did they have plans to visit in the morning? You just have no idea. Eventually he reached his stepson's house. The light was on now. Standing outside, he just stood there looking at the house. Why was he putting himself through this? But he knew it was a task he couldn't avoid and he rang the doorbell and was let in. Her son didn't say a word. He just led him to the kitchen. The rest of the family were sitting around the table eating breakfast and they knew from the look on his ashen face what had happened. Sitting down, he started to give them a brief description of of the night Anne had died. 
and what had happened afterwards, but got so choked up that he stopped after a few seconds. He couldn't cope with this. It was too painful and he realised he wouldn't be able to talk to them. He was too hurt by their lack of care or support. Words simply failed him. Am I really the only one who cared? Why had the burden fallen on me? The tears started to well up and he couldn't bear that. He had to leave, get some fresh air. It wasn't how he wanted to do this, but he brought them the news they knew was coming anyway. Mumbling an apology, he left quickly and started to wander home. I think the other thing as well is, you know, it talks about the family there as well. Mm. It's really, really hard, I think, when you have young children and you're trying to balance what's going on in your life as well. Very, very difficult situation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. But he stopped after a few steps as the tears flooded down his face and he heard the front door open behind him in the early morning quiet. He could hear footsteps as his, as his stepson ran after him. He just stared at David, appalled at the sad, dishevelled figure that stood in front of him. His stepson was stunned and at a loss of quite what to say. Gathering his thoughts, he realised his behaviour was remiss and he failed his mother, let alone his stepfather. He could only blurt out, I'll, I'll pop round later when you're feeling up to this. Well, help you sort things out, make the arrangements, you know, that sort of thing. Sorry, hadn't realised you'd any trouble at the hospital. You, you, you didn't phone. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Just talking about the sort of behaviours. And we've talked previously around people reacting to grief and coping with things in a different way. Yeah. And is it too much for people? Or how do people process things and grieve? And it's just people react in different ways. And it's very hard to understand how other people, if they're reacting differently to how you are. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that can that can really cause a lot of problems because people go through things at different speeds and as you say in different styles Mm. and one person's reaction can seem completely inappropriate to someone else from the same from the same group from the same family even Mm. i think it's interesting that we we're told that that david didn't call from the hospital i mean obviously we know that he's not been in the best place but that at least does give us sort of counterpoint to this idea of the callous the callous family not getting in touch it's a bit of a sort of admission from the narrator isn't it that that maybe david could have done more Mm. it's interesting as well because i know that my like we talked around you know my dad driving to the south of france as an example Mm -hmm. he can take a lot on sometimes and doesn't always ask for help classic kind of dad trope isn't it like no 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 i'll do it all myself i'll do it all myself oh i've burnt out (laughs) you have exactly that and I think it's a situation where perhaps everybody's in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking about my, my stepbrother here and talking about myself as well. Like, you know, perhaps I should have contacted my dad more and said, how are things going? You know, are you coping? And mm-hmm. perhaps should have picked up the phone more. But then also, I know that my dad's somebody who just gets on with things and copes with things. Uh-huh. And perhaps didn't quite realise just how close my stepmom was to passing away because dad's he doesn't really reach out for very for help very often mm-hmm. i'm not blaming my dad in any way but if you had picked up the phone and said i'm falling apart you need to come please and i would have been absolutely mm-hmm. i'll get in the car and i'll be there but at the same time perhaps i should have just been in the car anyway and just been there it's a communication there, there's a lot of a lot of the book i think in different ways seems to talk about communication problems and mm. a lot of the the angst that comes from the health service for example comes from the fact that some people communicate information in a very direct way and mm. some people maybe aren't good at communicating at all some systems aren't good at communicating and already quite early on into the introduction of the rest of the family you have this sense that 
you know, there's been a lack of communication about who needs what, who would appreciate what. Yeah, definitely. Culminating in this moment where, you know, he goes to see them and, and no words come out. We talked before about how some of the most poignant images in the book are, are the ones where something doesn't happen, when there's an anticlimax. Mm. And rather than some long moving speech or big heated argument, instead what we just get is David sitting in silence in the kitchen, mm. not able to find any words, but still just telling a story letting them know what's happened just by the way that he is at that moment yeah i mean his tears tell the story don't they but yeah it does make me feel quite guilty about not being present because i could have perhaps you know you're talking about a lack of communication i do feel like perhaps it needed somebody orchestrating things Mm. behind the scenes you know taking care of the bureaucracy and communicating with people and letting letting people know what's going on because it didn't seem like my dad was particularly in a fit state to do that necessarily yeah but then it could have wasn't communicate that he needed that support so it's yeah it's a catch-22 okay sorry i hadn't realized you had any trouble at the hostel you, you you didn't phone neither did you you could have at least visited found out what's going on did your mother or i need any help not that you care said david angrily where were you when i needed you all you cared about was your job, your possessions, your status. Could you get some time off from your bloody job? You're more interested in how much you will inherit than how your mother died. She suffered and she needed you there. Where were you? She needed you and you weren't there. I was there right to the end and it tore me apart. I've got to cope with that. You can go back to your family, to your big house, to your job. You have everything to look forward to in life. I have nothing. Absolutely nothing. Hear me? Nothing. Wow. That is a yeah, <laughs> a very big, very stinging charge to level at anyone isn't it i don't know if that conversation happened in real life i don't know i kind of in my head i can imagine my dad going round to my stepbrother's house i can imagine not really being able to say anything and i can imagine my stepbrother chasing him down the street but i don't know how much of that those thoughts or that conversation happened yeah i don't know whether those are thoughts you know like we have that thing where you have an argument you think of what i wanted to say or wish i'd said or what's the most hurtful thing i could have said yes and perhaps it's those thoughts there perhaps my my dad really did let loose at my stepbrother i don't know there's a line about being more interested in possessions and status mm. that doesn't entirely sound like the dialogue that's going to come out of someone's mouth at that sort of in the heat of the moment like that it's a bit of a police report description isn't it but you can imagine that the thoughts behind it could have come out yeah and also it's like i said before it's important to remember that this is a work of sort of semi-fiction as well yeah 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 so where it's a question about whether my dad actually felt that way and whether this argument happened or whether that that's there to progress the story to show that another relationship has broken down that you know another support has fallen away and to show that david really is alone yeah i think i think we can we can really sort of we can consider the relationship between david stone and his stepson just in fictional terms can't we and obviously that is not one that's working well no and david's lashing the hell out because he's at the end of his tether at this point and you know he's taking it out on on anyone who he feels should have been there for him and supported him. Mm. Still, he hasn't brought a nuclear bomb into the conversation. So in some <laughs> ways, he's having a better day. Exactly. And like I say, you know, my stepbrother would be processing this information as well, dealing with his own grief of losing his mother. Mm. So it's he would have been going through quite a lot of, you know, emotions and turmoil at that time as well. So I think, yeah, everybody, he's just going to 
needs to be a bit more forgiving on everybody, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone in that moment deserves to have the accusation leveled at them that they are, um, they're only in it for the inheritance. No, but I think you're right around the fact that David Stone's just looking to lash out at anyone and just a, a focal point for the anger, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting because you know we talked around how much is fiction and how much is autobiographical, and we obviously know there's an elder stepson. We know he lives a couple of streets away. I imagine he went round to tell them the news, and it's just. Yeah, where do, where does that line stop and uh, and the fiction begin? Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, last little bit of the chapter. Leaving his stepson open mouthed with his outburst, he strode off. But he felt better for blurting out. It was a mean, hurtful thing to have said, but it was true, and he felt so much better for saying it. It would have been so nice to have his support for him to have been there when she died, to have helped, to have been concerned, shown some love. Goddy was a hard-hearted mercenary, more interested in her will than how he felt. Typical banker. Everything valued, everything listed, everything accounted for, except for the feelings, the care, the love. They weren't on the spreadsheet. And that's your chapter 24. Quite a scathing attack. Mm, um, I made a little typo in my in my notes that I'm taking to remind me. Oh, yeah. To help me navigate the awkward moment where you asked me to remember what happened in a, in, in a chapter that I heard a week previously. And I think would have changed this little thumbnail sketch of the, the stepson. I wrote down that he was a baker. <laughs> which would be a very, very different impression of his career. Typical baker. <laughs> These bakers. <laughs> Only concerned with getting up early in the morning, getting their yeast to rise. Can't even count to a dozen. (laughs) (laughs) Always got to go one better than everyone else. (laughs) He'd show him. He'd get a rise out of him. Oh, nice. (laughs) He's only interested in making the next piece of dough, materialistic bakers. (laughs) You're desperately trying to think of one, aren't you? Yep. (laughs) Mate, I think I'll have to roll that forward to next week. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> Low fit alone, Ryan. Low fit alone. <sighs> that was terrible. That doesn't even work. It's a really odd chapter to read, isn't it? Because we, we've read hard chapters previously, but it's kind of odd and awkward when David Stone, and it kind of feels like my dad, is taking a bit of a swing at somebody else who is a real person who's yeah. just lost their mother in in, in yeah, the, yeah, yeah. that part of the story. It's yeah, it's it's a hard one to read, and especially because you feel like it's just a, a sort of character assassination on the page. <laughs> yes, yeah. Do you know if the person who's been fictionalized here has has read the book? I would imagine not. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. Probably not. Just sort of that relationship as well. Yeah. I think um, it, I know that everyone was still talking around the time of the funeral, which was a little bit later on. And but after that, I think things did start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. That relationship and probably didn't help from either side. To be honest with you, not that I know the ins and outs of it too much. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of pain on on both on both sides. Very hard thing to get through. Yeah, exactly. And probably yeah, probably neither of them are you know faultless. And and also both both going through a lot of grief. So it's yeah, a really difficult situation. You can see why somebody's death in a family causes a lot of rifts and sort of families can be sort of torn apart. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately that relationship is probably why my dad feels free to be able to write that is because that relationship broke down and he no longer has contact, which is such a shame because he although he had a bit of beef and a bit of an argument, he no longer has contact with two 
like the two children that my stepbrother has, so he's lost contact with the grandchildren there. Oh, yeah, that is really which is you know desperately sad. I think we'll kind of leave it there because it's difficult. It, it, you know, it's nice to leave a context and a background, but also it affects other people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's just really hard when the line we don't know where the line is and where it stops and where it ends and how much is how much was said and how much is a thought and how much of its story progression. Also, I'd really like to not get sued. So, um... mm. well, these are the words of uh, Barry Morgan. Just to reiterate, <laughs> 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 which may or may not be his real thoughts. We don't know. Hi, Barry, if you're listening. <laughs> and all characters in this story are not based on. On real people and any coincidences are <laughs> purely coincidental. <laughs> if you are Barry Morgan or if you've been affected by the issues raised in this programme, you, you can contact us. Please contact us directly, not not through your legal representation. But you, you can write to us at perfectlymurderous at outlook.co.nz, which I am now checking religiously before we do every single episode. So um, <laughs> if, if, you've, if you've got a horse in this race, or if you're simply a hard-working, flea-bitten professional detective out of the office and playing scale tricks with your son in the attic, drop us a line. Well, Sandy, if you think that's awkward, wait till you get to um, David Stone's thoughts on his first wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Yeah, that will we'll navigate that treacherous path in the near future. Okay. All right, Sandy, to take us away from today's, it feels a bit odd and a bit awkward today's podcast. Not necessarily tragic or sad, but just sad in a different way that, you know. Awkward. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, I've been thinking about your dad's efforts as a writer. Okay. Um, and I've always had a slight idea in the back of my head that I could write something myself. Don't worry, I'm not, I'm not about to mm-hmm. start reeling off my first draft of the, of the big novel. But... My problem's always been that I think I write dialogue quite well and create characters, flesh out characters. My sort of theatre background lets me do that. But I'm not great at coming up with plots. And one of my favourite resources for suggesting something that could be a plot uh, is a little game that I like to play on the BBC's Animals and Nature page. Because I've noticed over the years, they had a style of writing headlines which just all sounded as though they would be phenomenal 1980s B-movies. Okay. Either titles or or plots. <laughs> so I'm just going to read out some, some that I've collected over the years. <laughs> if there are any you'd like me to sort of start, start storyboarding, you, you can let me know. So th- these are all completely genuine headlines from the BBC Nature page. Vampire Plant, it's a classic. Battle of the Ape Men. Wonder Monkeys, which I think would be a, a banging addition to the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'd watch Wonder Monkeys for sure. Platypus Peril. If I w- walked past the cinema and there was a film showing called Platypus Peril, <laughs> I, I, I'd cancel the rest of my day. You'd just call in sick yeah, to work. I, I'd be straight yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crocodile Ambush. Ooh. Vampire Spiders. <laughs> Satnav sheep, most northerly hairy ant, team builds artificial jellyfish. Sloth's, quote, lazy sex life revealed. I think it'd be more of a story if the sloth had any other kind of sex life, to be honest. And my personal favourite, horrifying yet compelling straight-to-DVD thriller, simply called Sex Cannibals. I think that was actually made in the 70s. Well, I think... um... Well, if you're going to storyboard one, I, I'd have to go with um, quite intrigued by Satnav Sheep. Oh, yeah. Could just be the most 
just the most annoying satnav voice setting you've ever heard. It just bleats at you. <laughs> well, Sandy, I had a quick look. I did my own bit of research this week. And you remember you telling me the story of uh, Sandy King, the wild, wild west cowboy. Oh, yes. And the names intrigued me. And there was one particular story in there, which I'm not sure if you remember, which was Belly Bean Smith and the shooting of Ross Woods. There was an egg involved, I think. That's right. A shooting over the last egg in the house. Oh, last egg in the house. <laughs> and I said to you, I wanted to hear the story of Ross Woods and Belly Bean Smith. Congratulations for having done this kind of research. <laughs> this is phenomenal. So it's not that anywhere near the same length as the story that you managed to find on Sandy King and... Uh, William Curly Bill Brocious. Yeah. So um, it's just a short paragraph, but it does add a little bit more detail to that story as well. All right. So here you go. In 1879, Ross Woods got the last breakfast eggs at the Stratford Hotel restaurant in Shakespeare, New Mexico. I mean, what a bastard. <laughs> This didn't sit well with Bean Belly Smith, who was hungry. Oh, imagine. <laughs> also, this story has a different flavour. Now that we've, we're dealing with eggs, plural. Mm. The last egg, I mean, that's a happenstance that could befall anyone. But if it's eggs, plural, they could have been shared. Yeah, it's just pure gluttony from Ross Woods eating multiple eggs. So Bean Belly Smith didn't sit well with him. He was hungry. And also as a side note, also suspicious that Ross Woods was fooling around with Mrs. Beanbelly, <laughs> which I think might have more to do with the reason that <laughs> Ross Woods got shot. I was going to let that slide, the whole <laughs> you and my wife thing, but you do not fuck with my eggs. <laughs> and now you've taken the last eggs, and that is the last straw. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a patient man. <laughs> The two argued and went for their guns. Woods missed. Bean Belly didn't. You might say Woods egged him on. And that, sir, is my pun. <laughs> You've made up for a, a, a lot of lost ground in the in the bakery department. I don't I don't think we're gonna leave on a higher note than that that superb piece of wordplay. <laughs> Does not get better. Perfect. Alright, Sandy, what well, have a great week. You too. Alright, bye mate. Bye.